0: for your word. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Mark and for Peter and for his account and uh, for all the things that, that you've given to us and, and taught us in your word. God, thank you for your truth, that your word is truth. God, help us to, uh, to dwell on it and to hang on it and to be thankful and grateful for the fact that we have a, a Bible that we can read and understand, we have access to, we have freedom to To come together and to worship you and to study your word god we are blessed beyond measure Uh, we just thank you for how privileged we truly are god help us to understand your word as we open it up today and uh, look into the truth of your word We pray this in your name amen all right well last week we were considering uh prophecies concerning jesus as they related to his fulfillment of the different covenants the Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic covenant uh, the Davidic covenant and the new covenants and then we got into some specifics about how the Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ and prophesying his coming we spent quite a bit of time in Exodus 12 looking at uh, the lamb the Passover lamb and how That's a a picture of Jesus, and Jesus is, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, I believe, he is our our Passover, and uh, just looking at the the differences and how those relate, that the Passover lamb was to be without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, and Christ is our sinless lamb. Uh, John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, We compared how both the Passover lamb and Christ were to have no broken bones, the former being a picture of the latter, um, how the Passover lamb acted as a substitute for sin, just as Christ acted as our substitute for sin. We considered um, how, just like the Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, Jesus had to be lifted up. He told Nicodemus that, He must be lifted up just like the serpent was lifted up so that men could be saved. Uh, We talk about how he became a curse for us. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 talk about how uh, to be hung on a tree is a sign of being a curse. And Galatians 3 talks about how Jesus was that curse and curses anyone who is hanging on a tree and he became that curse for us. And then we began looking in... I'm going to use a Kleenex as a bookmark. We began looking in Psalm 22 last week, and I had hoped to get through that, and that didn't happen, which is okay. We got talking about other stuff. But let's turn to Psalm 22, and we will look at that Messianic psalm for a moment. In fact, I have a list up here of several Messianic psalms that we find in the Psalter that focus on Christ and prophesy and predict Christ in several aspects of um, not just his crucifixion, but his coming and his life, his crucifixion, even his reign in the future millennial kingdom. So, Psalms 2, 8, 16, 18, 22, 27, 31, 34, 35, 38, 40, 41, 45, 55, 68, 69, 78, 80, 89, 102, 107, 109, 110, 118, and 132. That's a lot, right? And Each one of those, in some way, um, touches on or or prophesies the coming Messiah. And so, again, let's turn to Psalm 22. Last week, we looked at verses 6 through 8, specifically talking about how he would be a a man who would be mocked and ridiculed. And we compared that with our study in Mark. Uh, Can I get somebody to read those verses for us and just refresh our memory? Psalm 22, 6 through 8.
1: But I am a word and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, "Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him.
0: Let him rescue him, because he delights in him." Good. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, well, that's weird. All right. Yeah, there's a little bit left in that verse. So, yeah, those verses there talking about how Jesus underwent this ridicule, this mockery as he was headed to the cross. And even as he was hanging on the cross, he was being ridiculed and and jeered by bystanders. Uh, If we go down and look at verse 11, we'll get some more information that relates to his crucifixion. Verse 11 says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. We know that that's the case with the crucifixion. That's the state that Jesus found himself in. All of his friends dipped, right? They all left, except for John. John was still there, and so he was able to entrust the care of his mother to John, but everybody else, um, they were gone, you know, by the time that the the cohort came to the garden to arrest him, to take him into custody, and Peter stuck around for a little bit, but only to deny him, right? Three times. Um, so there's none to help. Verse 12 of Psalm 22 says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength, is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. So again, even within this passage, we see more mocking and jeering at Christ. In verse 13, they open wide their mouths at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Uh, verse Fourteen, It's talking about how tired he is. We can see his humanity in this verse. He is poured out like water. All of his bones are, are out of joint. But it's not just physical weariness, right? He's emotionally drained as well. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Again, just the humanity of Christ uh, on display, both his physical and emotional uh, tiredness and, and weariness. In verse 15, we see this uh, prophecy that he's going to be thirsty. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Uh, we can cross-reference that with John nineteen twenty-eight, which says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all these things had to be accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Uh, just harkening back to Psalm 22, again, one of these... Famous Messianic Psalms, and then verse sixteen. Uh, just consider who this is talking about. This is talking about the the Almighty God of the universe, right? Who left His throne on high so that He could come and take on flesh. We're like right in the midst of Christmas season. Um, in John seventeen five, Jesus prays, "Father, uh, return me to the glory that I had with You before the world was." And this is where he's at in in our passage right in mark 15 it says for dogs have surrounded me a band of evildoers has encompassed me they pierced my hands and my feet and we have to remember that this is voluntary right he willingly subjected himself to this kind of torture and ridicule putting himself in this position that psalm 22 is describing um Could I get somebody to read verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 22 for us? Go ahead, Jerry.
2: I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots.
0: All right. Verse 17, we've already spent some time on this talking about how he can count all his bones. And none of his bones were broken, even though that was a common practice in... Crucifixion to break somebody's bones so they wouldn't be able to push up and breathe in and inhale. Uh, verse 18 talks about how they're casting lots for his garments. And if we head back to Mark, we'll see the fulfillment of this in Mark 15. I'll go ahead and read from Mark 15, verses 22, and I'll read through 26. And says, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated Place of the Skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. So we see this is uh, exactly what we read about in Psalm 22, right? They would take his garments and, and cast lots for him. It's crazy because they should have known scripture, right? They should have known that they were fulfilling this very prophecy about this Messiah, that they were denying to have been the Messiah. And all the while they're doing this in front of not just our Lord, but in front of their Lord, right? Taking his clothes and mocking and, and laughing and ridiculing him. Um, Casting lots for his clothes. Just adding to the humiliation of Christ all along. And in verse 25, it gives us a a time reference. It says it was the third hour when they had crucified him. Uh, This is talking about 9 a.m. It should be understood as 9 a.m. If you start the clock at uh, daybreak using... Jewish time method Um, would be around 9am if you're again starting at sunrise and this is when the crucifixion began this is after his trials, after the three Roman trials the three Jewish trials and uh, Pilate finally washing his hands and sending him off away to be scourged, to be beaten and then as Mark says the crucifixion began around the third hour, around 9 a.m. And then verse 26 uh, is talking about the inscription, the king of the Jews. And we have a little bit more information from John. In John 19, 19 through 22, it records Pilate's inscription as Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And this is in three different languages, in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. And you'll remember from John's narrative that the chief priests and the Jews, they weren't okay with this. They wanted him to say, no, have him write that it says that he said that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, nope, I'm, I'm not going to do that, right? I've already written it down. What I've written, I've written. Uh, remember that Pilate was somewhat sympathetic toward Jesus until his political career was uh, jeopardized and threatened by the Jews who wanted to undermine him and, kind of go over his head and go to Caesar and say, well, Caesar wouldn't be really happy if they found out that the Jews were rioting. And so that's what Pilate wrote, and he wasn't willing to change it even for the whiny chief priests and the Jews. And then also within verse 26, we should note that uh, this inscription isn't just a a title. It's not just an epitaph, but it's the crime that he's being committed of or being charged with. It says that this is the inscription of the charge against him, the king of the Jews. That's what they, they got him with. They couldn't find any legitimate crime to charge him with because he is like us in every regard, yet without sin. And he didn't do anything wrong, so they said he's the king of the Jews. That's his charge. That's his crime that he has committed.
3: Insurrection against Caesar.
0: Be, yeah. to be the king of: Caesar, the king of Caesar? Yeah. As we looked at last week, remember, Jesus said, "Well, you won't have any authority unless it were given to you by God." And even that kind of sharp rebuke from the mouth of Christ, that wasn't enough to deter Pilate at that point. It said, right after that, immediately, he still wanted to let him go. He sought to have him scourged and released. And yeah, it wasn't until the Jews were talking about going to Caesar and actually snitching on him, tattling on him, that he decided, okay, well, go ahead and do what you're going to do. I I washed my hands, like, uh, very laughably, but he wanted no part of that, even though it was completely his authority under which Christ was crucified. Any other thoughts or questions at this point? (coughs) All right, let's keep uh, treading on in Mark 15. In verse 27, I'll actually go ahead and read 27 through 32. It says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Again, just more insults and ridicule and laughing and making fun of, their king of their creator as he's hanging on a tree. Um, you might notice um, verse 28 in my translation, Nasby is in brackets That's because it's not in the, uh, in the earliest manuscripts. Next week we're actually going to be talking quite a bit about textual criticism and uh, how some verses will... Have a, a little footnote like that about not being in the the best manuscripts or the original or the earliest manuscripts. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But 28 doesn't seem to be original to Mark. In fact, it seems like it's borrowed directly from Luke. That some scribe or somebody else along the way grabbed that from Luke because that verse is in Luke 22:37, which is harking back to Isaiah 53:12 that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. And so that's where that came from, from Luke harking back to Isaiah. But it's found a home temporarily here in Mark fifteen twenty eight. 28. Uh, just making reference to the fact that this was prophesied ahead of time. Um, let's see in verse 29, it's talking about wagging their heads. And maybe you remember just barely reading that back in Psalm 22, 7. This was another way that they would uh, just mock and ridicule people. It was a a gesture of derision or disrespect, like spitting or uh, giving somebody 20% of a wave, right? A nice, friendly wave. Uh, It's a way to uh, just to, to put somebody down, to ridicule them. And then they, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, they continued to misquote him about uh, taking down the, the temple. You who are going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. He never said that he was going to destroy the temple, right? He said, you guys are going to destroy this temple, speaking about his body, and raise it again in three days. And all the while, they're completely blind. They have no idea what they're saying, right? Um, even going back to... Mark 4, when we were talking about the parables and the intent and the purpose that Jesus had for speaking in parables, it was so that the disciples and those who were his followers, they would see, but others, seeing, they would not perceive, right? And hearing, they wouldn't understand that it wouldn't really penetrate. They wouldn't get the point of what he was saying. And Clearly here we see they didn't understand much of what Jesus was teaching and preaching and saying along the way, and they're just flipping it around, turning it on him to to mock and to ridicule him. Um, And then we see in verse 32, it's talking about um, those who were crucified with him. Who is that speaking about? Who was crucified with Christ? Yeah, it was robbers, right? Uh, Plural. It says that those, plural, who were crucified with him were, insulting him so this is a reference to both of those robbers who were crucified on the side of Christ and how they were mocking and ridiculing him <clears throat> oh man I've been pushing the button we'll catch up here all right and in Luke 23 39 through 43 it talks about how one of those mockers repented right and was asking Jesus um, just For forgiveness, apparently, and Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. But Luke doesn't include in his account that that robber was mocking right alongside of the other mocker beforehand. He kind of paints it as a a dichotomy. There's one robber who's mocking and the other one saying, no, this man didn't sin, he didn't do anything wrong, we need to turn to him. But Mark gives us this added piece of information that both of them were at one point mocking. And one of them repented. The other one uh, died in a sin. (coughs) And um, yeah, we'll forego that. We talked about that a little bit last week. Any other thoughts or questions up to this point? (coughs) All right. Let's pick up in 33. We're in Mark 15, 33. And this is the, the pivotal point in Mark's gospel. <clears throat> He's been working up and building up to this point throughout his whole narrative, throughout the whole gospel. He's pointing people toward the cross, always wanting people to look to the cross. And now we're finally here uh, at this pinnacle point of the gospel, not just of his gospel, but really the, the highlight of all of history is Jesus on the cross. And Mark realized that. Mark wanted his readers to realize that and to understand that this is central to, uh, to history, to, to everything in the world. I want to share with you this quote from Mileto of Sardis. He says, He that hung up the earth in space was himself hanged up. He that fixed the heavens was fixed with nails. He that bore up the earth was born up on a tree The Lord of all was subjected in ignominy in a naked body. God put to death in order that he might not be seen. The luminaries turned away and the day became darkened because they slew God who hung naked on a tree. This is he who made the heaven and the earth and in the beginning together with the father fashioned man who was announced by means of the law and the prophets, who put up on a bodily form in the virgin, who was hanged upon the tree. That's... Yeah, that's deep. Just this early quote, recognizing that Jesus is God, recognizing the fact that this whole situation is so twisted and so backwards that the Creator is being crucified. But it's, of course, by design, right? The one who made the trees, hung upon the tree, the one who made the earth uh, is being pushed out of the earth, being rejected by man, even his own people. In verse 33, we see a couple other references to time. Again, we already established that the, the Jewish clock would start at sunrise. Um, and in verse 33, it says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So here we're dealing with from noon to three, darkness absolutely covered the whole land. And we're told by early historians, uh, Tertullian and Origen, that it wasn't just within Jerusalem. But they say that it spread, the darkness spread throughout the whole Roman Empire, which was pretty amazing. Um, this, again, was a big deal. This split the calendar. This is the central point, not just of Mark, but of the entire Bible, right? All the way from Genesis, pointing forward to Christ and to this Messiah who would come and crush the head of Satan. This is a an enormous deal within history. We see in not just the Old Testament, but uh, throughout scripture that darkness is often used and associated with God's judgment. Remember during the the 12th plague or the 10 plagues um, that darkness was one of those plagues that demonstrated the judgment of God upon Egypt. And in Joel 2, Joel 2 is all about the, the day of the Lord, the coming future day of the Lord and the wrath of God being poured out on man. I just want to read these references for you. In Joel 2, one and two it says, "Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the, of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick dark darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations i'm jumping out to verses 30 and 31 uh, it says again in joel 2 i will display wonders in the sky and on the earth blood fire and columns of smoke the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of and so, here, in the same sense, this isn't the day of the Lord. Again, the day of the Lord is still future. The day of the Lord is still yet to come. But we see the wrath of God. We see the judgment of God being poured out on the Son of God. Being poured out on Christ, who is bearing the sins of the world, who is acting as that uh, bronze serpent being held up and, and lifted up, raised up. He is acting as that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and this is just one of the visible signs that we see this darkness that's covering the entire land Uh, matthew goes into even greater detail talking about earthquakes talking about people raising up from the dead again this is no small deal this is a a major event within world history this is the central event within world history so much so that uh, just as we read here darkness was over the whole land from the 6th hour to the ninth hour, from noon till 3 o'clock when Jesus gave up his last breath. <clears throat> In verse 34, it says that the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this, this darkness that's covering this whole land, this is just... a a visible reflection this is just evidence of god the father's wrath being poured out upon god the son as he bears our sins in his body on the cross as peter said uh this is the the evidence of that and jesus is realizing that he understands that he cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me uh these references here, Habakkuk 1.13, it says that God cannot look upon evil. Remember, God is holy. He is absolutely holy. That's where we need to start in our understanding of God and our understanding of the gospel. That God is set apart. He is holy, He is just, He is perfect, and we are not. He is so holy and just, He cannot look upon sin. Jesus took our sin upon Himself in His body on the cross. Uh, Revelation 21.27 is talking about heaven that whole chapter is talking about heaven and it says that nothing impure or unclean will enter it neither will those who do what is shameful in the sight of god but only those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life so god cannot be in the the presence of sin he cannot be in the presence of evil and i want to share with you this quote from john macarthur he says in his commentary moved by his perfect justice that's Important, right? God is perfectly just. There is no injustice in God. Moved by His perfect justice, God's infinite wrath released an eternity of punishment on the incarnate Son who as an infinite and eternal person absorbed the tortures of hell in a finite span of time. This was the dreadful cup of wrath or cup of judgment that Jesus anticipated while sweating in the garden of Gethsemane. With intense agony, the Son of God experienced that which He had never known before, the abandonment of His Father. That separation was not one of nature or essence. The Lord Jesus never ceased to be the second member of the Trinity. Rather, it was a separation of the loving communion He had eternally known with the Father. That's incredibly important, this separation was not one of nature or essence. Jesus never ceased to be God. He never ceased to be that second member of the, tri- of the Trinity, but he was separated from this loving communion with his Father, and he felt that weight, that emotional burden, not just the, the physical burden of having been beaten, having this crown of thorns shoved on his head, but that emotional burden of bearing the weight of the sin of the world. And perhaps with this verse, Mark fifteen thirty four, 34, um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps you recognize that as going back to Psalm 22 once again. That's how that psalm starts off. Psalm 22, 1 starts off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is not just a, a popular psalm today in 21st century America this was even more so popular in first century Jerusalem these people that were watching Jesus being crucified they would have known this psalm and as soon as Jesus cried out that verse they would have their minds would have instantly gone to psalm 22 and not just to psalm 22:1 but to the entirety of that psalm which we've already looked at is pointing forward to Christ and uh, picturing him as the the subject of Psalm 22. This man whose clothes are being gambled for. This man who is being mocked and jeered and people are shaking, wagging their head at him. Uh, this man who's fulfilling all these prophecies that have been around for hundreds of years at this point. This psalm that these people knew by heart. And Jesus is crying out the, the first lines of this psalm. Uh, just drawing back to their mind to their, their recollection, these words about their Messiah that they were actively in that moment crucifying. Any thoughts or comments at this point?
3: Imagine many of the people of Jerusalem felt that God had a 500 years of being under somebody else. Romans 3. Others, i right. not but Greece, yeah. Greece yeah. yeah, but anyway, they felt, yeah, where is God? Where are you? Yeah, abandonment. You know, and I think this Jesus, <clears throat> this shows his humanity, too. I, mean, I I believe this, this is coming from his human side of feeling. God is abandoned. Like I said, He's still God. Yeah. He's still part of the Trinity. But yet, His human side had never known, well, of course, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's neither side, I guess, or part, of however you want to describe it, had ever known to be separated from God. Yeah. But I think particularly <clears throat> it shows us humanity.
0: Yeah, his humanity is definitely on display. Um, A lot of times, with this passage in particular, people can get into trouble. We can be tempted to follow some some poor examples from history and get in trouble, Uh, not just with this, but talking about the two natures of Christ. We looked at this probably a year ago or over a year ago now when we were first getting into the book of Mark, talking about the... The hypostatic union, right—the fact that Jesus is truly God and truly man—and if we separate that too farly, too too farly, too too far, I guess, um, then again we can get into some sketchy territory. Uh, Nestorianism will like separate the two natures of Christ because he does have two natures, right? He is truly God, truly man, um, and almost make him into two persons, and um, Eutychianism will kind of do the same thing and they'll like blend him and say well he's only like 50% per, uh, human and 50% God um, and you know, this is a, a tricky one dealing with this verse in particular and trying to wrap our minds around it Andy you had a comment or question
1: yeah just a comment I mean <coughs> the God is not killed. God is eternal there's nothing that man can do that would kill God. Yes. And yet Jesus came and walked as a man, hypostatic union, and proved that he was God by what he did, the miracles he performed, the prophecies that he foretold about the coming bride of Christ, mm-hmm. all, all of these things. It's a I think it's just a concept that we're incapable of fully understanding. For sure, it's it's beyond our ken. We can't we can't get there from here.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: too big. <laughs>
3: yeah, too big. There's right. lots of theories about this. Some some claim that at this point the two did separate. The man and the God separated, or I don't know. Anyway, there's mm-hmm. a lot of weird theories out there. Yeah, and and we I I, I just don't think we can understand it because God can't die. True. The man God did die
1: well, and the creeds were created because of heresies that were saying that Jesus was half God, half man, and mm-hmm. all these other things. They uh, they ensconced what, what was the understanding from reading the plain text of Scripture so that people would understand well, understand get as much as
0: possible. Yeah. It's to
1: apprehend but not fully yeah. comprehend. I mean, you can you can add this to a whole list of things that we don't understand about God, the Trinity, mm-hmm. you know, uh the hypostatic union, you know. There's a long long list.
0: Yes. So. Yeah, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man yeah, and that's right. uh, yeah. sanctification, how that's a work of the Holy Spirit and yet a work of our own, right? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that helps us at this point is to define death and to think about, well, what is death, right? Because when we die, we don't cease to exist, do we? But it's a separation of our immaterial from our physical, right? And that happened, right? His body was dead and uh, it was lifeless, but that doesn't mean that Jesus, the God-man, God God in the flesh, the second person of Trinity, that he ceased to exist, uh, because Colossians 1.17 says that he is holding the world together, right? Um, in him, all things are held together. And so had he ceased to exist, then our world would implode or explode; It would just not be. I don't even know. But we do know that um, God doesn't die, right? That he doesn't cease to exist. But he took on flesh, and then his spirit left his flesh. And so defining death properly, I think, we will... Help a little bit in our understanding.
3: It's kind of what I was
0: trying to say. Is
3: as God, He can see past death. You know, we we know <coughs> we don't die when we die; that our spirit's still alive. And yeah. Different. But yeah, when we're looking at death, we can't see that. You know, yeah. And, uh, I don't know how to say it. But we we can't see past death.
0: But He knows the the end from the beginning.
3: He could, but the human side of him, you know, maybe could.
0: I don't know. Yeah, and his incarnation, Philippians 2, right? He laid aside the use of certain attributes. Again, not that he laid aside his attributes, not that he ceased to be God. A lot of people use the the terminology that it was subtraction by addition, that he being the God, uh, the all-knowing, all-powerful, godly universe he didn't lay aside any of his attributes in taking on flesh, but he, he took on flesh. He added humanity to himself, and in doing that, uh, again, limited the use of certain of his attributes. And again, that'll give us a <laughs> headache. We're never going to fully comprehend that. But we do our best, right? Did you have something, Jerry?
2: Well, nothing about this is that the prophecy of Psalm 22 is years before years before,
0: mm-hmm. yeah david was a thousand years which
2: was a thousand years after abraham mm-hmm. so you go from the beginning to the pinnacle of israel's more of earthly history to the crucifixion which is pretty much the lowest point they could have gone It's just interesting
0: so much. Yeah. And I really like that verse we looked at last week and how Matthew begins his gospel in Matthew 1, 1, that This is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Just to kind of frame and put in his readers' minds, this is the, the man who's fulfilling that prophecy. He is the one who is going to, to bless the nations of the world. He is the son of David who's going to sit on that throne forever. He's going to um, fulfill that Davidic promise that he would have a house and a kingdom and a throne for all of eternity uh, and yeah again just to think that this is this is history this has happened on a real day in history uh, Jesus came for this reason he came to seek and to save the lost and lived 33 years every day waiting and looking forward to this day knowing that it was coming knowing it was going to happen uh, knowing that it was within the, the perfect plan of God uh, it's Yeah, it's a trip.
2: (laughs) Well, and then I just struggle so much with the thought of people to say that they've got as good Israel aside. Yeah. Because, I mean, (laughs) it's that much of the Bible. Yeah. It's that much of the Bible. And And, you know promise to Abraham the words of David the crucifixion to think that that's the end of Israel yeah. it's just end of I mean, it is
0: just yeah know. for me it really brings into question the the reliability of God And yes, totally. yeah I, I can't wrap my mind around going that to yeah Sarah
3: so knowing what was going to happen how can he use those
0: words? how what? Yeah, like knowing that you know he, that he was coming down here why did he use those words my god my god why have you forsaken me yeah i think it was uh one to because for the first time he was experiencing this separation from god not a, a separation in nature or essence but a separation from their communion uh, for the first time in all of eternity he was separated from the father because he was taking on the sins of the world And then um, also the fact that he's drawing the minds of the people back to Psalm 22, which starts off with those very same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that whole psalm just lays out the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. It's talking about, uh, as Jerry mentioned, a thousand years before, that all these things would have to happen to the Messiah. And there are other... uh, messianic prophecies within the psalms within the old testament that jesus fulf- fulfills and fulfilled in that moment and i think he was trying to highlight that within the, the minds of those who were there and later on for us the readers who are going back and reflecting on that and being human the
3: bible tells us he was tempted in every way he was tempted and certainly <coughs> still had, he could have had those
0: human emotions of fear of death um, and the agony. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. They had never died before. Just (laughs) just the emotional separation. Yeah. Because God had, you know, just the emotional separation.
3: Yeah. To feel alone. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The worst pain possible. I mean, that... There's doctors that say that that, there's nothing that would be more excruciating than what he went through. Mm Worth where and happened to lift himself up for each breath, he had to lift himself up with his feet. Most of
1: an unimaginable pain that we can't even imagine.
3: Yeah. The very word
1: excruciating means from the cross. Yeah. It's experiencing the full wrath of God.
0: And adding those two aspects together, the physical pain and the emotional pain, the separation that he had never in in all of eternity past experienced up until that point and never will again. It was a a unique time in history for sure. All right, well, let's keep going. Uh, Let's look at verses 35 and 36 of Mark 15. It says, when some of the bystanders heard this, they began saying, behold he is calling for Elijah. That was their explanation of him calling out, my God, my God why have you forsaken me? Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it in a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Well it was a popular Jewish belief that Elijah would come and comfort those righteous people who were in distress. And here they're just continuing to mock him and continuing to jeer him uh, you think you're so righteous, you think you're so holy you must be calling out to Elijah, that's what he's doing let's see if Elijah will come and uh, just continuing to, to mock our Lord um, and in again just in their their wickedness wanting to poke fun at him trying to give him this sour wine, oh he's He's in distress, right? He needs Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come. I don't think this is necessarily an act of compassion, but just another form of mockery. And in verse 37, Mark, in his uh, unique way, in his brief way, he just kind of ends abruptly. He says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. <clears throat> and going on in 38, he explains what happened after that. Uh, says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom that is amazing that's incredible to realize that this dividing point they've been there for the people of Israel uh, since well, for again hundreds of years not necessarily since Israel began but um, this veil was torn it was taken out of the way this separating point between God and his people um I want to read to you this verse, Leviticus 16:17. That whole passage, uh, that whole chapter in Leviticus 16 and 17, is so pertinent to the cross and what took place at the cross. But in 16:17, it says, "When he, talking about the high priest, goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all of the assembly of Israel." So the high priest himself he would go into the the holy of holies nobody else was allowed into the holy of holies and it was there that he would make atonement for the people and they were all left on the outside they had to stay on the outside let's turn to Hebrews again uh, I wish we had more time to go through and to look in depth at Hebrews but we'll just look at these couple of passages in Hebrews 9 verse 6 and 7 of Hebrews 9 Says, Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, uh, or into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters, and this only once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And so Again, this is kind of a a picture of the temple, the temple that was split, the inner sanctuary from the outer sanctuary, with this big bell. It wasn't a a small bell. It was the thickness of a a hand's breadth. It had several curtains that were taken and sewn together. It would be impossible for a man to tear. But it was this curtain that separated the, the inner sanctuary from the outer sanctuary where only the high priest could go. And Jesus, our perfect high priest, in his death, he... Broke that veil. He tore that veil, that separation between what is common and what is holy, between man, fallen, sinful man, and the holy, perfect God. And he tore that, making a, a way possible for us to go to Him, for us to commune with God. We don't have to go through a human high priest. We have a perfect high priest, a sympathetic high priest in Christ. Uh, jumping down in this passage. In verse 11 of Hebrews 9, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So he doesn't have to go in year after year like this, earthly high priest. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices over and over again. Uh, these sacrifices that are just uh, a mere shadow. Uh, Hebrews 10.1 says these old things are just shadows, former things. Jesus offers a better sacrifice, his own blood, and he does it once for all. Uh, continuing on in 9.13, it says, for if the blood of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, just like that lamb we looked at in Exodus 12, to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So again, Jesus is the the better sacrifice. He's the superior uh, promise that's pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices. He shows up in the New Testament. He's a better high priest. In, in all ways, Jesus is better and superior. He is um, the one who ushers in this this new covenant in his blood, just like he said at the Last Supper. This is the the new covenant that he's inaugurating in his blood. And the death of Jesus ushers in the, the new covenant and absolutely changes everything. Um, we're no longer under the law, no longer... Um, Having to go in and offer these sacrifices annually because Jesus did it and uh, it is finished. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. Let's look at the response from a couple of these onlookers. uh, No longer in Hebrews 9, unfortunately, but back in Mark 15. We see in Verse 39, this centurion who was standing nearby, right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the son of God. This is an, an awesome statement that Mark is recording from the centurion. He makes it one of the uh, hanging points, I think, for his gospel. All the while he's in writing out his gospel he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah he is the son of God and he uses this man's words to declare that even though I think this man didn't necessarily have that in mind um, and I didn't even think about that until I read through this commentary but that's what uh, John Grassmick says I want to read this quote for you and it makes a lot of sense to me he says that the Roman officer the centurion he probably didn't use the phrase the Son of God in its distinctive Christian sense as a reference to Jesus' deity. He probably viewed Jesus as an extraordinary divine man, much like the Roman emperor who claimed the title Son of God. However, Mark regarded the declaration in its distinctive Christian sense. The centurion unwittingly said more than he knew. And so, yeah, the the emperor, he would use that title and go by that title, son of God. Uh, This man with a a pagan background, not with a Christian understanding, wasn't likely declaring that Jesus is a son of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he is equal with God in the same way that Jesus uses that phrase in uh, John 5, 8, and 10 when uh, people pick up stones to stone him. But he still makes this declaration and uh, unwittingly he proclaims Jesus to be the Son of God. Um,
3: I've heard some people claim this was the centurion whose daughter was healed. But we have no one reason to
0: believe that. Yeah, I don't know. I think that centurion he had that understanding beforehand. He wouldn't have to wait and see Jesus breathe out his last to to know this is different. This is unique. Uh, he already had that that true conversion, that that heart change moment. Um, you know, like I said, Mark, throughout his whole gospel, he's been unfolding this story of Jesus as Messiah, starting from the very beginning in Mark 1.1. 1, 1, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, and remember, the disciples, all the while, they're trying to figure out who is this man, what, what's so special about his man, this man. He's unique. And for a while, they have a hard time embracing and understanding who this is the demons understand all along that this is the messiah this is the son of god Uh, the the disciples jesus tells them several times you guys are still blind you guys aren't getting it it's just not clicking at the midpoint of the gospel peter declares and answers jesus saying you are the christ but even after that they stumble and fall and take their eyes off christ and don't have a a true understanding of the fact he's Messiah. It's, in fact, after that, that Jesus declares that you're still blind, you're still uh, deceived. And then here, toward the end of the Gospel, in 1539, it's when the centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. And so this seems to be a, a theme of Mark's. He's pointing out all throughout the Gospel, uh, trying to uh, un- uncover and to... Display the recognition of Jesus in His role as Messiah, and then the last two verses of this chapter, in verse or not this chapter, but this section, forty and forty-one, uh, they really testify to the great respect that Scripture has for women, the high standing and position that Scripture has for women, especially in this day and age when women weren't respected, and of their role in Jesus' ministry. It says in verse forty that there were also some women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And actually next week, we're going to skip the section on his resurrection. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. We'll look at the the ending of Mark because I don't think that that ending of Mark that you probably have in your Bible is original. So come back next week and we talk about that and talk about textual criticism which is uh, a new practice but an important practice and we should know what we have in our Bible and uh, where it came from, where it originated from. Any closing thoughts or comments before we Take off. Jim.
3: The Roman centurion, being a centurion, he has probably witnessed lots of crucifixions, maybe hundreds. And uh, for him to see something different in Jesus, I think is significant. Yeah. I have, uh, on what you just said, Jim, I've got the movie study Bible. No, it's the MacArthur study Bible. And it says that the centurion has seen many crucified victims die, mm-hmm. but none like Jesus. The strength he possessed at his death, as evidenced by his loud cry, was unheard of for a victim of crucifixion. That, coupled with the earthquake that coincided with Christ's death, convinced the centurion that Jesus was the Son of God. Yeah. And according to tradition, this
2: man actually became a
0: Wow. and not to mention the people popping up out of the grave, like Matthew mentions. it's kind of a a big sign, right? Oh, th- this is different. Something something different's going on here. All right. Well, let's pray and we'll fellowship.